It's Radio Free 501C, the voice of Rogue Tulips Consulting. I'm Cecilia Sapp. Don't forget to subscribe. We're on all your favorite podcast services. This week, I'm joined by the Michaels, Michael Butera of Association Activision and Michael Wyland of Sumption and Wyland. And we have a great topic to kick off the fourth quarter for you. Eliminate the Executive Committee and other heresies. Welcome to episode 212. Hey everybody, it's Monday, October 2nd is the beginning of the fourth quarter of the year. Are you ready? We have a great topic to kick off your fourth quarter. Today, we're going to be talking about eliminating the executive committee and other heresies. Hi, I'm your host, Cecilia Sepp. I'm the principal and founder of Rogue Tulips Consulting. Welcome to everyone. And I want to send a special greeting to our global audience. Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be. And thanks again to everyone for joining us this week. This week, I am joined by two of my longtime friends and colleagues, who I like to call the Michaels, Michael Butera and Michael Weiland. They're here to share their thoughts on this topic. They say they agree, but we'll find out in the conversation. So Michael B., Mr. Butera, would you like to say hello and tell our audience a little about yourself? Well, thank you very much, Cecilia. It's great to be on a program with uh, Michael uh, W. Uh, <laughs> as you know, uh, I have my own consultancy, and I'm very proud to be a member of the Rogue Tulips Network as well. I specialize in governance and working on the future thinking that's uh, necessary for associations. So with that in mind, uh, I'll pass it off to our good friend, Michael Weiland. Yeah, please. Well, uh, I'm Michael Weiland. Uh, I practice uh, consulting with my wife and partner, Margaret Sumption, uh, as we have for 33 years, working with nonprofit organizations and associations on board governance and strategic planning for hospitals. And we try to limit our strategic planning to hospitals. And we also do executive coaching. Uh, the, uh, the big thing for us is everything that happens inside the boardroom, whether it's between board members or between the board and the CEO or the CEO in particular, we really try to work in that environment to try to resolve conflict and improve function and overall organizational health. Outstanding. And it's great to have you both back. And it's great to have you both on at the same time. So let's jump into this topic, the executive committee. And I think everybody who's in the know knows we're talking about the executive committee of the board of directors. So they do a lot of things in between board meetings, and sometimes they just do a lot of things. So why should we eliminate the executive committee over to Butera? Well, the first and foremost reason for ending what has been the tradition I believe, is because it diminishes the board as a whole. Mm-hmm. Individual board of director members are often thought of as rubber stamps for what the executive committee does. This is just a lunacy kind of thing. And with the availability of all the modern technology we have, this idea that you need to convene a very small group in between meetings, you know, has passed its time. We now have the capacity through technology to do so much more than we've ever done before. And I could go on and on uh, about uh, how it diminishes the board as a whole, but I'd like to uh, pass on some initial words to uh, our friend, Michael. Well, thank you. I mean, I agree with everything you said. And I think the, 
you know, what happens to board members, particularly those not on the executive committee, is that they become disenfranchised, you know, and, and separated from the core work of the board. And what happens in that case is you have people who are recruited, hopefully at least in part for their passion for mission and their desire to be involved and to affect change. And these people are not being given the opportunity to do that in a meaningful way. And what happens is they tend to turn off and walk away because if their talents can't be used on this board, there are other boards that are ready and willing and desiring those talents um, on their boards. Mm -hmm. And so the organization loses a lot of its intellectual and intellectual capital and energy um, when it disenfranchises a significant number of its leaders. Uh, and that's what happens when the executive committee tends to take over um, or lead, quote unquote, you know, the, the, the core work of the organization. Well, and I would also think those are all excellent points. And uh, having worked with boards as well, uh, I agree. Because the executive committee ends up running everything and the other board members, of course, as you've both so well stated, say, you know, what the heck am I doing here? You know, I could be home binge watching ballers on Netflix, <laughs> right? So it's like, right. why am I even in this room? They may not even be motivated to go volunteer somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And when we're yeah. looking at this again, you've, you've probably both heard me go on what I like to call Cecilia's soapbox sometimes about 19th and 20th century models being applied in today's world in Butera, you already mentioned all the wonderful technology we have now. And, and the executive committee came at a time when we didn't have all that technology and we didn't get together as easily or quickly as we do now. So do you think it is time? I mean, what's the argument? How can we, and I, I want to ask Butera first, and okay, an audience, you might be thinking I'm being rude calling them by their last names, but they're both named Michael. <laughs> so that's why we're doing that. Um, and also I'm from Missouri. That's just like how we talk to each other. So, <laughs> so Butera, what's a good argument to say to a board? Because this is going to be a startling thing, like the pandemic lockdown. What? How? So how could we convince people to get rid of the executive committee? Well, let me make two arguments. The first one, uh, I'm not an attorney, but I think most people know that each member director is equally responsible in a fiduciary way for what the board does. So if you just rubber stamp what the executive committee did, and you don't take the opportunity to do the proper, proper questioning, the proper oversight, the proper insight that's essential to your role as a director, uh, you know, you could very well be creating your own legal problems, not only for you, but for the association as well. So that's point one. The second one is that I think it diminishes the idea of building strong director boards mm -hmm. because the board members often don't get the kind of professional development that's essential to really being strategic thinkers as well as strategic planners. We, you know, we're very good at this idea of the strategic plan. Uh, Michael mentioned that a little bit ago. Mm -hmm. What I really worry about with the strategic plan in too many organizations these days is that it really becomes a, a beautiful set of words on a very nice document 
that nobody does Jack you know what with. <laughs> so, uh, I really think that we need to emphasize this idea of directors being uh, strategic thinkers as well as strategic planners. And the executive committee takes the thinking away from them. So it's time <laughs> for the executive committee to say so long. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So, Mr. Wyland, what do you think of that? No, I absolutely agree. I would say that you know the you know, there is a a benefit to the organization of having access to more information, more perspective, more diversity, you know, a viewpoint um, of input. And I think that uh, you know I served on a national foundation board about twenty years ago, and I remember having a telephone conversation with the executive director, and one of my concerns was that he was not spending a lot of time cultivating his foundation board members. And I stated this to him as politely as I could, but directly. And his response, I thought, was very telling. He said, yeah, I need to do more with my executive committee team. Uh, That's not what I said. (laughs) No, And it becomes one of the things that the executive committee often uh, becomes is a crutch or a safe space for the CEO or executive director. You know, it's a lot easier to corral four or five people than it is 15. You know, you know the you know the executive committee of four or five or the entire board of 15. Yeah, I'm going to deal with these four or five people because we can sit around a single table and talk. It's a little bit tougher to do that with the full board. I can build a relationship with a few people, but not with the entire board. And that is another way that the, you know, that the organization disenfranchises members of the board who are not on the executive committee. And that is a danger, again, not only for the individual board members who, as as Michael Butera says, have a fiduciary duty and a legal obligation equal to that of the officers of the corporation, um, but, uh, but they just, you know, they have to be a part of the process in order to know what they're doing and be able to do it and do it well. Exactly. Permit me to add add a couple of things here. Um, First, you know, all of us have committed sins in this business. I've been an executive director and a CEO a number of times, and I really enjoyed working with my executive committees for all the wrong reasons. Uh, It wasn't that I didn't like them. I didn't get to know them. It was that it was easier Easier Mm -hmm. isn't the point. It's effectiveness that we want to have. So we substitute a kind of unnecessary efficiency in the modern world for a real important effectiveness. And in terms of other sins, so to speak, when someone who is an executive or an officer says, well, there are just too many board members for everybody to get to know one another and participate then the question is, why is the board that size? Exactly. Maybe, maybe the board <laughs> size is out of kilter. And that's another thing we have to talk about uh, these days. Because yeah. the idea that, you know, more board members equates to, you know, more engagement probably is not true. That's right. And I'm sitting here thinking what chief staff executive would say, I am not going to build relationships with the entire board because who do they think is going to become the executive committee? 
later right, on. Right. Who's going to move into those leadership positions? And I have been a chief staff executive. I had something of a relationship with every board member. I had some relationships with our chapters in that organization. I have run large chapter networks or affiliate networks. I once ran a chapter network with 46 chapters, one of which was in Europe. I had a relationship with at least one person at every chapter. So it can be done. Are you going to have that end up daily or weekly contact with all those people? No, but yes, you can get to know everybody a little bit. And again, you should, because if you're the chief staff executive, you need to be looking ahead. That's the strategic part of your job. And who is going to be on my board in three years? Not who's on my board now, not who is the executive committee now, because frankly, your executive committee now is like data. Once it's written down, it's old and useless. Well, and one say that out loud. Oh my God. Okay. Well, so. one thing I wanted to point out is, you know, that that there is a positive benefit for a chief staff executive to be involved with their board. Uh, Compass Point did a survey about oh ten or twelve years ago, and one of the questions or two of the questions were, how much of the chief staff executive's time is spent working on governance? And then the question was, how satisfied is the board with the CEO and how satisfied is the CEO with their role vis-a-vis -vis the board? And it was really interesting. There was a, a, a synergy that if the, if the CEO, chief staff officer, spent approximately 20% of their time on governance activities, what happened was the CEO and the board members were both far happier with the relationship than if they spent either less time or more time. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of I can hear a lot of CEOs saying, oh my God, I don't have enough time to spend 20% of it on my board. But there is a payback for that in terms of increased satisfaction, both for you and for your board members, which is important to remember because the same Compass Point survey said, 10% of all CEOs are currently seeking other employment. Mm -hmm. And you know, 90% of CEOs don't expect to be in the same position five years from now. And the other part of the survey indicated that one third of all separations of CEOs from nonprofits are involuntary. You know, and what do you think is driving that, the involuntary separation? Is, is it just the board dynamics, which I know we've all been a victim of at least once? Mm -hmm. Well, let me say that there's multiple reasons, some of which could be the fault of the executive, just mm -hmm. doing something stupid and not believing that it is. Uh, on the other hand, a lot of it's what we're talking about. They have no full uh, relationship with the board as a whole. So if you get a couple officers who uh, want more and more control uh, on the daily functions, which are not their business, Right. It doesn't take very long before the tension rises and the executive committee says to the whole board, well, this just isn't working. Well, is it not working for the board or is it not working for that officer or that group of officers? So officers have a responsibility, but the responsibility isn't the one that they currently have. Their responsibility, in my judgment, ought to be building the director's capacity and competencies mm -hmm. and being better listeners and collaborators with their board. 
their job is not to tell the board, this is what we're going to do. And I, I think that over time, you know, the executive committee has just assumed too much power. Mm -hmm. And directors have let them do it to be candid. And so have executives. That time is over. This is not the 20th century. It's the 21st century. And times are changing and the environment is different. Time for us to move on and do some new things. Yeah, well yeah. said. We need to modernize our governance structures, most definitely. So we promised the audience other heresies. Uh, I've already made a nasty remark about data. <laughs> so, you know, what are what are some of these other heresies that we could discuss? Like, for example, we've talked about how chief staff executives are often pushed out of their job for no good reason. Uh, I, I remember when I lost my job, I started talking to other chief staff executives and they said, oh, we all get fired at least once, if not twice. And it's usually not because of performance. Right. It's because the, somebody didn't like me or somebody wanted my job. And so it, one person I spoke to a couple of years ago who had been in a similar situation said, you know, and there's no one for us to go to, to report, report our board for behaving badly. Right. So unless you want to drop a dime to the IRS, which I don't think we want to do because we have them looking at us, right? We want to stay under the radar, <laughs> but um so what is is that a heresy that our CSEs in our profession should have someone to go to? Well, I think there, you know, I, you know, I think there are a couple of related points that I want to make. One is that one of my heresies is to say that strong boards don't fire CSEs. Mm -hmm. Weak boards do. Ooh, ooh, I like that. And the relationship between a board and a chief executive or chief staff officer should be a partnership of strong equals. And when it is not, when either the CEO or the board are weak in their you know, execution of their duties and responsibilities, that's when you run into the personalities, the turf issues, the communication deficits that lead to things like unpredicted or you know, sudden leadership changes. And that can be, yes, the, you know, the, the CEO can be fired. But it's amazing how often when the CEO gets fired, about a third of the board resigns about the same time. Yeah, I, I, here's another point where Mike and I agree. I think he's right on point with each of the items he said, as well as, as you were, Cecilia. Let me, let me just add, uh, uh, you know, in this new world that we're in, uh, one of the other things that I think we need to take a strong look at with boards. For years and years and years, we elect boards, particularly in the professional society area, based on geography. You know, we have a regions, whatever we call them. And I have to ask myself, well, do we think that talent is equally uh, determined by geographic distribution? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. Um, another way to look at it is, you know, in terms of our need for uh, DEI, are we going to achieve uh, a well-balanced board in terms of demography, demographics, ethnicity, just because of uh, regional geography? I don't think so. But when we start saying to one another, well, maybe just electing people 
by geographic region isn't the right way to do it, then people say, oh, you're anti-democratic. There's nothing anti-democratic about it. All we're doing is applying a governance model that we learned as a result of the way our government works. Uh, and then you have to ask your question. You know, the obvious question, just how well is the government working under that system? Well, like, right. I, I, I recognize that we do need diversification, but hmm. will elections in the way we're doing them now provide us with the kind of diversification of hmm. uh, uh, demographics, thought, intelligence, and capacity that we're looking for to have strong, capable well-functioning boards of directors. And see, in my practice, I run across a lot of organizations that are still trying to select board members based on name. You know, who do we want to be on the board? And instead of saying, what role or roles do we need to fulfill? What gaps do we have in our board leadership? And how do we fill those gaps? You know, once we know what the profile is for the kind of board member or board members we need, and whether we're talking about geography, whether we're talking about DEI, whether we're talking about, you know, other criteria, um, you know, once we know what those criteria are and identify them, then we can go out and vet people who might be appropriate who meet those criteria. Um, but you know, you know, one of one of my heresies is. You know, and this is more true in the C3 world than in the C6 world, is we got to get away from recruiting personalities and get more towards recruiting roles. We have yeah, to do that. Absolutely. I agree. Absolutely we need to look at the be. skills. Yeah. No. I, um, you know, because when you're looking at that and, and when you were sharing all those good comments, Wyland, I was like, you know, we really need to also be clear about, do we have a money board or a working board? So, and I think a C3 wants to have a money board more than they want a working board because they need yeah. people who can not only write a check, but can get other people to write you checks. That's a very different skill set than a working board where maybe the board is actually stepping in in a smaller uh, organization and actually doing some of the work work. Then see, I, see, I object to both of those terms. Okay. Uh, because... To me, a working board is for a startup organization that doesn't yet have staff capacity. Um, and a money board, you know, is often disengaged from the operations and the strategy. They're there because they were recruited to write checks. What well, my goal is, is to promote governing boards okay. who are neither working boards nor money boards. You know, where I say, oh, yes, every board member should make a meaningful charitable gift if you're in a charitable organization or if you're on an association board that has an associated foundation, you know, and many associations do. Yes, board members should be supporters. You know, they should be able to identify where the resources are coming from. But that's very different from being a money board. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think money boards are a really bad idea. I think working boards are a necessary evil when you're getting started. Um, but I think the goal should be to move towards a governing board that has the eye on strategy, on resources, you know, the broader perspective and the longer term. Um, you know, that, that's a really good point. And I have to say, I like that better. That's the ideal, the governing mm -hmm. board. But yeah. I also think we need all three terms because mm -hmm. uh, we need to know what kind of board culture we're dealing with. Right. So 
who is our board? What kind of board? What is their mindset? Because let's be honest, there's some people, they just want to write you a big check mm-hmm. so that they can say their name is on the board. And, and there are people like that. And is that a bad thing? I don't think so. If you're a group that needs money, y- well, you know, well. if you're a group that needs people no. to donate money and help you find other people to donate money, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but no, I do agree with that. I like the governing board concept the best and that's the problem. And this isn't quite a heresy. It's really just stating the obvious, but that's the problem with the nonprofit world right now is we don't have enough governing boards. We have too many people bringing their emotional baggage into the boardroom, not putting their head in the game and saying, I'm in here to represent everybody and not just my chapter or not just my region. I I am here on behalf of everyone. We have that big problem. You know, another thing that I, I, you know, some people might consider a heresy, just because you work in that profession or industry does not mean you are qualified to run your professional organization. (laughs) <laughs> or trade organization. And some people are going to say that's a heresy. That was something that was changed for the CAE qualifications a few years ago. If you came from the industry, you only had to work in a nonprofit for one year, not five like everybody else. Mm-hmm. So that's not, that is uh, really just a slap in the face to everybody else, in my opinion. I've said that and I'll say it here in, on, a, on the record. They'll dig it up 500 years from now and go, okay, that was what she thought. But that, that, that is wrong, you know, because if our profession is going to have any integrity, we cannot keep promoting the concept that anyone can do it. Because like I used to work at an association for otolaryngologists, and I would just tell them, you would never ask me to do ear surgery, and I wouldn't ask you to run an association of any kind, any kind of nonprofit. And so that's really a thing that actually is heretical currently in our profession and has been for a number of years. We're not supposed to say that. We're not supposed to speak up and say, no, just because you're a doctor doesn't mean you can run an association. And I think we have seen many people fail in that role because they didn't understand what the job was and they didn't understand it. And that brings us back to all the wonderful points you both have been making about board training, board recruitment, and knowing that we want to create a culture of a governing board that actually understands their role and responsibility. And so that is something of a heresy because you're, we're not saying what's in the book. We're not speaking the good word of the good book, right? So. Yep. Well, language is important. And it's interesting that you use the phrase running because some people think that running means owning. And I mean, owning in a, in a different sense than ownership of a collaborative uh when they hear the word running they say well i get i run i run this organization no they don't run the organization they steward the organization Mm -hmm. their responsibility is to ensure that when they leave that they leave the organization better than it was and prepared for a new future and far too many people don't leave. That's another heresy. You right. know, they, and it's particularly true in the C3 world. They just stay around forever. Yeah, hey, I have one client hospital that had a board member who was on the board for 42 years. And it was awfully difficult to try to explain that, you know, maybe you need to turn over a little bit more often because when you bought, brought that person on at age 40, he was very important and very necessary. Now he's 82. 
um, you know, maybe we should give him the golden handshake and give him the plaque and throw a party for him and, you know, let him retire from this board service. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about diversity on boards, I think that uh, that chronological age should be one of the diversifying factors uh, because there are, you know, yes, there are a lot of boards with old white men on them. I can say that out loud. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, and, and, you know, we can talk about gender and we can talk about ethnicity, but we should also be talking about age. Um, you know, there's, and that doesn't mean we recruit a bunch of children. What it means is we bring people in who are early career and mid career, as well as those who are, you know, senior service, uh, you know, really try to diversify the viewpoints in the boardroom and that'll make the board more responsive and more understanding of the membership or the stakeholders, whatever group that they are, um, trying to work with. And let's not codify that in the bylaws. No, uh, some groups do that. They codify. We must have a young professional chair. We must, and then it's in the bylaws, so you have to do it. Where that should really be in policies and procedures for the nominating committee. We right. want to seek diverse representation of all the members we have, right. because diversity is not just what we look like or where we come from. It mm -hmm. is our experience. It's our knowledge. It's our, you know, strange yet unique take on the world. <laughs> Maybe we <laughs> see things really differently, you know, been having a lot of conversations on neurodiversity lately. And I think, you know, making sure that that is included because, you know, there, neurodiversity is part of diversity. And yet I recently had a guest, Cynthia Lockery on the show talking about it. And she said that she's been talking to some DEI people and they're like, what? Neurodiversity. <laughs> It's like, it's diversity. It's people yeah. think differently. Or maybe they've been diagnosed with something like ADD or ADHD, or uh, maybe they're on the autism spectrum, or mm -hmm. maybe they have one of the three Ds, as she called it, dyslexia, dysgraphia, dyscalculia. Uh, so we all have these things that maybe people can't see. And we have to try to find a way to, to find those things out about each other. And yeah. You know, gee, the power of the question, right? Just asking people, like, what do you need to succeed? What do you need to do this job? What do you need to learn so mm -hmm. that you can grow and build your knowledge base? And so fulfilling all of those things takes time and thought, but it takes a lot less time in the long run than cleaning up messes by people who mm -hmm. don't really understand why they're there. And I'm not saying they're doing it for necessarily ill intent. Some people do, but that's not really the no, norm. No. I think most of the time things go wrong because people don't know what they're doing. Well, let me mention one more heresy, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> that uh, will probably drive a few people crazy. Yay. Uh, it's one word, <laughs> bylaws. Mm -hmm. I work with an organization that has a set of bylaws that goes on for pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. There is something wrong here because much of that <laughs> doesn't belong. Uh, we obviously need appropriate operating procedures and policies, but all of those shouldn't be enshrined in bylaws for the very reason you mentioned. You know, once you put them in bylaws, it's mandatory, period, end, finish. And mm -hmm. I, I must admit, I was working with an organization recently. I pointed it out. I pointed out ten items in their bylaws that they never do. Wow! They just, they, they just never do. Well, 
some of them, you know, when you have a 45 page set of bylaws, it's kind of hard to find everything, you know? <laughs> yeah. So we need some simplicity, some simplicity, not mm -hmm. simplistic, some simplicity and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, overall uh, understanding that the bylaws should be a general set of guides that fulfill the appropriate rules wherever they're incorporated, you know, state or in the District of Columbia. But it's not a place to make sure that your pet peeve is done year in and year out. That's right. Oh my gosh. People put way too much in the bylaws. I agree. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, way yeah. too much in meeting minutes. That was one of the lessons yeah, I learned yeah. early in my career as one of my bosses said to me, you know, you've done a really great job. They're, they're so detailed, <laughs> but <laughs> you need to take most of this out. <laughs> so two words that I learned early on, discussion ensued capture <laughs> yeah right. they talked about it and then they decided something but you don't put in you know you don't want to show how the sausage is made no i i had uh, i had someone who said that the purpose of meeting minutes is to describe what was done not what was said ah love that that is great i haven't heard that one before <laughs> i have like i have, a, I, I have a, a possible approach you know for people who believe that the executive committee is the location where, well, this is where we take care of board stuff. And, you know, BoardSource, which used to be the National Center for Nonprofit Boards, advocates a model where rather than exec an executive committee, you have a governance committee. And it's set up very similar to the way you would have a finance committee or a programs committee or an operations committee or a fundraising committee, whatever kind of committee you might need. But the purpose of the governance committee is the care and feeding of the board of directors. And, you know, it, it's policy and procedure specific to the board and the board's relationship with the CEO. It is where, um, where leadership development is addressed. It's where board succession is addressed. You know, how are we doing our leadership development? How and where are we recruiting new board members? Um, are we administering a process for selecting or electing? You know, that can come through the governance committee. And, you know, borrowing from, you know, my healthcare clientele, you know, it's, it has to do with the hygiene of the board. Um, all the other committees really work with the organization as a whole, but the governance committee works with the board specifically. And that's how you, and, and the governance committee does not have to be officers. It can be anyone who shares an interest in the effective running of the governance of the organization. Hey, Mike, what sounds like we need some soap and water. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh that's great well you know I, this has been so fun we three heretics uh knocking the legs out from under some of our age-old beliefs here uh love this conversation and you know frankly we just don't need the executive committee anymore uh whether you want to accept that or not <laughs> it's like we just don't need it anymore i love the governance idea so i wish we could talk longer but we'd be here for another three days so we're going to have to wrap up this episode for this week i want to thank the michaels for joining me for what's always fun conversation between the three of us so i'm going to throw it over to michael butera and ask michael to share the one thought he'd like the audience to take away today and how people can get in touch with them if they want to share their own heresies 
the most important thing that we did today was told people to think that it's not the 20th century. It's time to govern in a, in a new and modern way. A quarter of a century is gone. It's time for us to think of new ways to govern. If you want to get in touch with me, uh, the best way is to send, I'll give you my direct email. It's Michael B at associationactivision.com. And let me add my thanks to Cecilia and Michael Weiland uh, for their excellent comments here today. Oh, thank you, Michael. And Michael Weiland, would you like to share a closing thought and how people can get in touch with you? Absolutely. Thank you, Cecilia. Thank you, Michael. You know, this has been so much fun. And if it went on for another three days, I'd be here for every minute of it. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, I guess, you know, my parting thought really is that each individual board member has equal value and equal responsibility for being involved actively in the governance of their organization. And don't let anyone tell you that you don't have that responsibility and that opportunity. Uh, don't let anyone pat you on the head and tell you to go sit in the corner for the next three years. Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, that's that's not why you were put in charge. And that's what happened. You were put in charge of the governance of this organization. Um, and to get in contact with me, um, you know, I have a LinkedIn profile and all that stuff. And also a website, www.sumptionandwyland.com, and the A-N-D is spelled out. And my email address is michael at sumptionandwyland.com. I'd be glad to talk to you. Great. And you should check out uh, the Wyland and Sumption blog, because it's always full of interesting ideas, like why we need to get rid of the executive committee. That's where this <laughs> the whole conversation started. So... Uh, thank you again to my guest, the Michaels, Michael Butera and Michael Weiland. We have to go rogue for now, but we'll be back next time with another exciting episode. So don't forget to subscribe. If you'd like to learn more about Rogue Tulips Consulting and how we can help your organization bloom outside the box, check out our website, roguetulips.com. If you don't see what you're looking for on the services page, give me a call and we'll talk. And if you're looking for continuing education for nonprofit management executives, whether you're getting ready for an exam or you're looking for CE for a renewal process, check out our education program. It's so big. It has its own website, the 501cleague.net. Check that out too. So on behalf of myself and Michael and Michael, thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.